Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Alright, so we've been going through this series that I called The Truths That We Confess. And the whole point of this is that we're uh, kind of going through the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was a confession given to the Church of England. And, and the whole point of the confession was it, it defined what it meant to be an Orthodox Christian. What are the most important doctrines and practices for the church. What do you have to believe to be a, a, a real Christian? And we're not necessarily going through it teaching what the doctrine of the confession says. No, we're using the articles of the confession as kind of a topical guide to get us through uh, all the major doctrines and practices for the church. Uh, I think that this is, uh, I know it has been for me, I pray that it has been for you, a great compliment to the type of teaching that we get on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights and things like that. Uh, at Calvary Chapel, we typically teach book by book, verse by verse, through through the Bible. And that's great. That's a great way to, you know, preach the whole counsel of God and not leave anything out and things like that. But I, I think it's a little bit limited in, in a sense because a lot of these things, you're only getting them in the context that they're presented in that passage. And I think we have a hard time, you know, after the years, then putting it together and, and seeing what is the whole Bible, what does the whole canon of Scripture say about this. So we're kind of taking it from the other approach. We're taking uh, a topic, and we're saying, hey, what does the whole Bible say about this topic? And like I said, that's meant to complement the verse-by-verse -verse studies that we get going through the Bible. And tonight we find ourselves talking about Lawful oaths and vows. Lawful oaths and vows. And so it begs the question, what is an oath or a vow? A lawful oath is part of religious worship, wherein upon just occasion the person swearing solemnly calleth God to witness what he asserteth or promise, and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he sweareth. That is what the Westminster Divines said. That's how they define an oath or a vow. It's a promise that you're making uh, between another person and yourself or another entity and yourself, that you're making it before God, and you're calling on God to be the witness and the judge if you do not fulfill this promise. Oaths and vows are a part of religious worship, the Creed says. But they're a little bit different than each other. An oath is calling on God to judge or to curse the one speaking if he has not spoken the truth, for the truth. Uh, oaths are usually made to other people uh, before God as their witness. An example of this, uh, of an oath, uh, is found in 2 Samuel 21, verse 17. Here, David's men are coming to him and they're making him take an oath saying that he won't go out to battle with them anymore. They're saying, hey, you're too valuable. You have a target on your back. All the enemies, they want you. It's better for you to stay back in the camp and we'll go out and fight. And they needed to make David make a promise or make an oath that he wouldn't go out to fight. A vow is a little different. A vow is a solemn pledge or promise made to God. 
uh, vows often have an if-then clause. I'm sure we've all experienced this, right? God, if you will get me out of this jam, I will serve you forever. God, if you will provide for me just this once, I'll, I'll give up such and such sin. God, if you'll move on my behalf, I'll start tithing to the church. Things like that. It's, a, it's an if-then. God, if you do this, then I will perform this other act. And that is about made to God. And there's a couple of examples of this. So there's really a lot of examples of this in the Bible, but a couple of them I want to look at. The first one is in Genesis 28. Here, uh, Jacob is on the run. Remember, he had ripped off his brother Esau. He had stolen the birthright and the promise. And he is he's on the run from his brother. He thinks his brother is going to try to kill him, and, and he is scared. And he makes it to this uh, place called Bethel, and, and he lays down for the night. And God appears to him in this dream. And he wakes up uh, from this dream where he sees uh, God, uh, you know, this uh, ladder going up to heaven. And it, it says this, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. So if you protect me, if you'll provide for me, if you will be with me, God, then I will make you my God, and I will give tithes to you. I will tithe a tenth to you. Another example of this is in First Samuel chapter 1. Here uh, we meet a, a lady named Hannah. Now, Hannah doesn't have any kids, right? Her husband has another wife, and, uh, and she's had children, and uh, Hannah is a little bit jealous. And anyways, they go up to Shiloh to worship the Lord. That's where the tabernacle is at the time. And she won't eat. She's distressed. And she's weeping before the Lord in the, t in the tabernacle. And Eli sees her. And she makes a vow. And she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. So God, if you will open my womb, if you will give me a son, then I will dedicate him to you. He will be a Nazarite before you. It's an if-then between the Lord. So an oath is made between two persons or groups, and a vow is made between a person and God. Oaths and vows are a little bit different, but they're the same in that both cases it is out of reverence for an obligation to God that they're made and kept. It's God the one who's the witness to both, and God is the one who's the enforcer of both the vow and the oath. You know, oaths and vows have been a part of every culture throughout human history, really, um, because they're needed. 
because people are liars, really, is the answer. Right? That that's why we've needed to have always in God. And, you know, every culture had different ways of doing it. Uh, I was reading about one culture in Mesopotamia that if they thought that the women had been unfaithful, they would take their this river, this rapid river, and they would throw her in. And if she would escape alive, then she hadn't been unfaithful and she would be taken back into the group. But if she died in the river, then they would know that she had been unfaithful and uh, had committed adultery. And so these cultures, every culture had ways of doing oaths and vows, uh, but it was, a, it was a really common thing, and it came out of a need. And that need was that everybody lies. In Romans 3, chapter 4, Paul says, May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you judge. You see, ever since the fall of Adam, every human being has a propensity to not tell the truth. That's why Jesus told those Jews that they were of their father, the devil, because they were acting like the devil. He says that he was a liar from the beginning, that when he lies, he lies out of his own nature. That's all he could do is lie. He's, that's his propensity to speak lies. And everybody, when they're born, before they're born again, is has the devil as their father. So this entire world is alienated from God and born into the family of the devil where lying is the mother tongue. So human beings have this propensity to not be truthful, and this isn't a good thing for societies. There needs to be a way to motivate people to tell the truth. And so they came up with these oaths. And the idea is that you would make an oath or a promise before God or the local deity, and they would invite judgment upon themselves if they're untruthful uh, or fail to fulfill their end of the bargain, right? So it's saying, hey, this God, this deity is going to be the witness between me and you, and if I fail or you fail to live up to your end of this oath, there will be a judgment from God upon us. And we see the need for oaths and vows and things like that today when people have to testify in court. You know, that's a it's a weighty thing, right? We want to make sure that people are telling the truth, that they're incentivized to tell the truth. When you enter into an agreement, like a mortgage for a house, you know, there's a half a million dollars or a million dollars at stake, and we want to have ways to ensure that people are telling the truth when they're saying, hey, I will make this payment. When people are getting married, we want to make sure that people know that, hey, this is a, a serious thing that you're doing. You're making this oath. You're making these vows really before God, to God, that you will love this person for the rest of your life. So, so we need to make sure that there's a way to ensure that these people are being truthful and understanding the gravity of the situation that they're in. When my friend Kyle and I started to make Jesus and Big Joe, that podcast about my life story, we had to sit down and make a contract, have a an oath between the two of us because Kyle was investing a whole lot of money into this and he wanted to make sure that I was going to hold up my end of fulfilling, making it and promoting it 
and things like that. And I was investing a lot of my time and my reputation and things like that. And I wanted to make sure that he was going to continue to pay for it and to make sure that the, the project got finished and things like that. So the two of us made an oath and said, hey, you know what, we're going to do this and God's going to be our witness and these are going to be the penalties if either one of us backs out. When I started working at the church, right, the same thing. We had to make an oath. I had to say, yes, I will be here and I will do this and this and I won't do this and this. And we're doing that. They're going to compensate me such and such. And we made this vow between the two of us. So it has been necessary for civilization and will be necessary until sin is done away with, really. Until we get to the new heavens and new earth, there will need to be a way to ensure that people could be trustworthy and they're not lying until sin is done away with. And it may seem weird that uh, this topic is even in the confession at all. You know, when I, I first saw it, I was kind of taken aback, right? Because we studied some pretty great doctrines, like, the providence of God, the law of God, the gospel, the covenants, all of these things. And, and now we get to lawful oaths and vows. Right? At first, I, I really didn't see the significance. I, I didn't get it. Why would this be here? Why would the Westminster divines, these super smart people, these really godly and studied men, think that this was so important to include in this confession? But the more I started studying it, I started to realize that the Bible has a whole lot to say about vows. We, we see this really throughout the whole body. And, and, and God actually says a whole lot explicitly about it, not just that there's a lot of vows in the Bible. And so this idea of making a vow, making an oath, is really important to God. I entitled this message, Holy Communication, because that's what this topic is really about. It's about God's holiness. God is utterly holy. He is faithful and true. In him is 100% true and no falsehood whatsoever. And he wants us as his people to reflect that. He wants us to speak truth because he is true. When we don't speak truth, we're actually speaking like the father of this world, the, the devil, right? Because he is a liar. He's a liar from the beginning. When he lies, he's speaking from his nature. His nature is to lie. God's nature is to be truthful. So the way that we demonstrate that we belong to God is to be truthful in our speech, especially when we make oaths or vows. We need to make sure that we keep those. It's a way that we display whether we truly believe God's holy, if you think about it. If I believe God's holy, I'm not going to go out and attach his name to a lie. I'm not going to go out and make a false vow and attach God's name into it, bring God into the lie, this holy God, into something that's unholy, that would profane God, that would be blasphemy. And, you know, if I believe God is holy, that means that he has to judge sin, and he's just going to bring judgment upon me for that lie, for that blasphemy. So the way that we talk, especially in the promises and oaths that we make, really displays whether we believe that God is holy or not. Do we believe that we could attach the name of God to lie 
that we're making when we make a false vow? Do we not believe that a holy God must and will judge sin, including my lie or unfaithfulness to fulfill my vow? Does the way I speak reflect the holiness of the God that I profess? See, God is holy, and he wants our communication to be holy as well. You know, this topic, though, has been really confusing for the church. Uh, I read two verses earlier, right, uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and from Matthew chapter 5 that seem to be kind of contradictory to each other about making oaths. Uh, it's also been, uh, you know, there's been this debate throughout the church whether Christians should even make a vow at all. Uh, there's been groups like the Anabaptists that take what Jesus says and what his brother James the Just say about oaths and vows and say, you know, Christians should never make an oath or never make a vow under any circumstances. There's no way that should happen. I had a friend, actually the guy that led me to the Lord, Skip, and he had to go to court and he had to testify in court. And he made this big old scene when he went into court because he wouldn't put his hand on the Bible and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. He's like, no, I won't swear in. I'm not going to do it. And he tried, you know, showing the judge in the Bible where Jesus says that you shouldn't make an oath to a vow. Now, I kind of applaud his effort for trying to be faithful. It was a little misguided, I think, you know, but for standing on principle. But Matthew 5, 33 through 37, our text, let me read it again. Again, we have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond that is of evil. They uh, look at this verse and say, see, Jesus says no, no oaths at all, right? That's, that's what he said. And it appears like Jesus' half-brother James is saying the, the same thing in James 5, verse 12. It says, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. You know, when we carefully examine what Jesus and what James are saying, we see that they aren't prohibiting swearing. They're not prohibiting making an oath, but they're prohibiting making insincere oaths. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, had, had said, we have to honor our oaths to the Lord because the word of God says so. In Leviticus 19.12, it says, you shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. So rather than by swearing by the name of God, which they would be bound to, because God said that they had to explicitly at the Old Testament, they started swearing by other things. They started swearing by Jerusalem, by the temple, you know, by heaven or by earth. And, and they thought, hey, you know what? We're not swearing by the name of God. We're not swearing by Yahweh. And so we don't necessarily have to be as faithful with it. They were building in a uh, 
an excuse or a, a loophole into their God. And we know this, right? Uh, well, this is the problem because in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is going to condemn the Pharisees and the scribes for this very thing. Starting in verse 16, he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple that it's nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. You see, Jesus is condemning them not because they made an oath, but because they're doing it deceitfully with no intention of actually carrying it out. They're putting a, a loophole into their oath in a way to not have to be obligated to fulfilling it. You see, James and Jesus say that we're to be honest to the point where people just trust us with what we say, where we don't even have to say, I swear, where it's not a big deal, where people just take us at our word. That's the whole point for oaths to begin with, is because people are untrustworthy, people are liars. So they need some kind of verification that you are going to tell the truth. The idea is, is that we're to live our lives in such a truthful and such an upright way where we're blameless and people just trust us. They don't want to make us to enter into an oath or a vow or some kind of agreement to begin with. You know, uh, another reason I know that that's, you know, kind of what Jesus was getting at with these oaths, he wasn't condemning oaths altogether, is because Jesus made an oath. When Jesus was on trial before Pilate, he was forced to make an oath. I'm sorry, before the high priest, he had to, to make an oath. In Matthew 26, uh, verse 63, starting 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is, what is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you're the Christ, the Son of God. He's making Jesus take an oath. And Jesus says to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, so when the high priest tries to make Jesus enter into an oath to make sure he's being truthful at his own trial, Jesus doesn't say, hey, 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 I can't make an oath. Making an oath is illegal. You guys shouldn't make oaths. He didn't condemn oath making. He entered into the oath that the high priest wanted him to make. You know, when Jesus would walk around and he'd be preaching in his ministry, we'd often hear him say things like, verily, verily. Or, you know, the more modern translations, truly, truly. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Or, truly, truly, I say you know, as a way to attest that what he is saying is the truth. And there's groups that think that when he said truly, truly, or verily, verily, that he was, in a sense, making an oath. But how about Paul? 
All throughout the New Testament in the writings of Paul, we see Paul making oaths to the readers of the letters that he is writing. Right? So Paul, being the apostle that he is, writing inspired scripture, wouldn't be making oaths in that scripture if it was something that Jesus had condemned. In 2 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, But I call God as my witness to my soul, that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. In Romans chapter 1, verse 9, For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, he is my witness to how unceasingly I make mention of you. In Galatians 1.20, now that I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Those are all types of oaths or promises or vows. You know, in the Old Testament, God made oath to his people over and over again. In Joshua 21.44, and the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. So God had promised to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they will go in, that they will take this land, that God will defeat the enemies, he'll subdue the land, and he'll give it to the children of Israel. And in Joshua 21, they came in, and they found that rest, and they remembered that, hey, that was because the Lord had sworn. He had made this vow to us that he was going to give us this land. In Exodus 32, remember the Moses goes on the mountain to spend 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord. He's receiving the law. He's receiving the, the Decalogue and, and whatnot. And he comes down and, and, and what's happening? Right? The, the children of Israel, they become impatient. They thought Moses was dead, and so they told Aaron, hey, you know, make us a god and, and let us worship. And so they made this golden calf, and they were worshiping that, and they were having an orgy. And God's wrath grew, and God was going to destroy them all. And so Moses starts interceding to the Lord on behalf of the people. He's literally being a type of Christ. He's standing in between them. And, and, and he literally says, you know, let the, the judgment fall upon me, not your people. But he says this about the oath that God had made to their fathers. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind and got the harm which he said he would do to his people. So Moses used the Lord's previous vow to plead to the Lord to have mercy on his people. And God remembered that vow and was merciful. He spared them. Now there's different types of oaths in the Bible. There's what's called a conditional oath. Right? This states that there's a condition that needs to be met for the oath to be enforceable. An example of this is in Genesis chapter 24. Here, uh, Abraham is going to send out uh, his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac. 
right? And he sends Eliezer, his servant, he says, hey, you're not to take uh, you know, someone from, from these people, but you're to go to my people and bring someone back from my kin, from my son. And, and he made uh, Eliezer take an oath. He made him stick his hand under his thigh and promise that he would bring back someone from Moses' own people for Isaac to marry. But Eliezer says this. He's like, hey, uh, what happens if I can't convince her to come? What if she doesn't want to come with me, right? This isn't all just dependent upon me. And what does Abraham say? He says, well, if she won't come, then you're free from this from this vow. It was conditional, right? If, if she won't be a part of it, if she won't come back with you, then you are free from this obligation. But there's also unconditional oaths. This is the most common type of oath in the Old Testament. And a, a good example of this is at the end of the book of Genesis, where Jacob, he's about to die. Remember, he's in Egypt. And he makes Joseph and his brothers swear an oath, saying that they will not bury Jacob, their dad, in Egypt, that they will take the bones with them and bury him in the promised land, in Canaan, the cave of Torah with his fathers. Right? And so Joseph makes this vow, this oath, and he goes to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh, hey, I've, I've made this vow that I'll go and bury my dad in Canaan. And Pharaoh lets Joseph go. He says, all right, yeah, go, bury your dad. How long are you going to be gone? And lets him fulfill that vow. But that's an unconditional vow. There's also special vows, right? A, a Nazarite vow is an example of this. And Numbers chapter 6, we're introduced to the Nazarite vow. In verse 1, it says, Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man or woman makes a special vow, the vow of the Nazarite, to dedicate himself to the Lord, he shall abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. He shall drink no grape juice, nor eat any fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grape of the vine. From the seeds even to the skin, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. All the days of the separation of the Lord, he shall not go near to a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or his mother, for his brother or for his sister. And when they die, because the separation of God is on his head, all the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. So here's a voluntary vow that people are making for a set amount of time where they're saying, hey, I'm going to be separate. I'm going to be dedicated to the Lord. I'm not going to cut my hair. I'm not going to eat or drink anything that comes from the vine. And I'm not going to do anything that would render me ceremonially unclean. I'm not going to go next to anything that's dead or uh, anything that w I could touch that would render me unclean. I'm going to be set apart 
before the Lord for this certain time. But I want to highlight that it was done by choice. God didn't require anybody to do that, but it was something that you could choose to do. Uh, we talked about this in Acts 21. Paul takes this Nazarite vow. This is something that uh, is specifically for the Old Testament. We don't have any other indication that New Testament believers are still, you know, taking this Nazarite vow. But there was a, a special circumstance that afforded Paul to do it in Acts 21. He came into Jerusalem, and the apostles in Jerusalem were telling him, hey, this town's kind of on edge. They've heard about how you're, you're speaking things contrary to their, their fathers and their customs, and, and they're kind of worried about that, right? And so they said, hey, there's four guys here that are taking a vow. Why don't you take a vow with them? And the idea was that it was going to show that Paul isn't bringing in some whole new pagan set of uh, worship for this, this whole new God. But no, he's worshiping the God of their fathers, just the fulfillment of that God. But it's the, the, the same God, just the complete revelation of that God that Paul was worshiping. So he did it kind of to build a bridge with the people of Jerusalem. You know, when the children of Israel, when they got saved, so to speak, they got saved through the uh, parting of the Red Sea, and then they went out into the, the desert, and they came to Mount Sinai, right? So they were going to receive the law. And it was there at Mount Sinai where they entered into a covenant with God. In a sense, they, they, they made a vow to God. It was like a, a marriage, just like how when we have weddings today, people exchange vows or make a vow before or to the Lord before each other. That is exactly what the children of Israel did. In Deuteronomy 26, verses 18 and 19, the Lord has today declared you are to be his people, a treasured possession, as he promised you, and that you should keep all his commandments, and he will set you high above the nations which he has made for praise, fame, and honor, and that you shall be a consecrated people to the Lord your God as he has spoken. So you have both sides here. God promising things and the children of Israel promising things, saying that they will keep his commandments, <laughs> right? That he'll give them praise, fame, and honor. They'll be a consecrated people. Right? There was this covenant, right? You read a little bit longer, and they said, yeah, all that you commanded, we will do. They accepted the terms of that upon themselves. And throughout the Old Testament, Israel is exhorted to make vows to the Lord and to honor them. It's a part of their regular worship. Psalm 61, verse 8. So I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may pay vows day by day. Psalm 66, 13. I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay you my vows. Psalm 76, 11. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all who are around you, around him, bring gifts to him who is to be feared. So, all that to say, a lawful oath or vow is really a part of Christian worship. In Deuteronomy 10.20, it says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. Right? So, so we are to make vows, we're to 
swear by the name of the Lord. So our first fill-in is our vows must be lawful vows. Now we just proved that vows are a part of worship, that we're supposed to swear by the name of the Lord, but we need to do it lawfully. So fill in the word lawfully. All right, we just saw vows are necessary. We also saw the scribes and Pharisees had a tendency to make vows in an ungodly or unlawful way. So let's look at a few things we should remember when we are making vows to ensure we aren't like the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees that Jesus pronounces woes or curses upon because of their insincere vows. So we're going to look at a few points on how we'll make Lawful oaths and vows. Point number one, we need to remember the weightiness of the Lord. So fill in the word weightiness. Now the Hebrew word for glory is kabod, and it literally means heavy. The, the Hebrews saw God as being heavy, not because he was, you know, fat. <laughs> no, that, that wasn't it. He was heavy. Like when, when something really profound happens or, or something really kind of you know, deep or something really drastic happens, we, we go like, wow, that's heavy now. Right? Especially like the hippie dude, wow, that's heavy. Right? That's kind of the idea. Right? Uh, when Uzzah uh, is, tries to stable the ark when it's fallen off the ox cart and he's struck dead, that, that was heavy. When, when Nadab and Abihu went in and to worship the Lord and lit strange fire and, and they were struck dead for it, that, that was a heavy moment. When, when Korah and his friends rebel against Moses and God opens the earth and swallows them in front of the, the nation, that was, a, that was a heavy moment. The idea is that we need to remember this heavy God is the one that we're making our vows and our oaths to. And he hears everything. He sees everything. He knows everything. And we're inviting this holy, all-knowing God to bring judgment upon us if we fail in fulfilling the vow or the oath that we make. So point number two, vowing to anything or anyone other than the Lord is idolatry. Fulfilling the word idolatry. If we're going to vow, it needs to be to the Lord. In Deuteronomy 16, verses 13 through 15, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods. Any of the gods of the peoples who surround you, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of this earth. You know, God didn't want the children of Israel to make vows or oaths to the pagan deities around them, you know, because that would be idolatry. Instead, he wanted his children to use his name and to make an oath or vow in his name. Remember, oaths and vows are common all over the world. And all these people around the children of Israel, they're making oaths, they're making vows, but they're making them to false deities. And so God's like, you're not going to do that. You're not going to swear to some God that doesn't exist, that's not able to hear your promise, that's not able to judge your promise, that's not able to hold you accountable to your promise. No, you're going to swear to me. You're going to swear 
to the Lord. You know, when we swear on something other than the Lord, in a sense we're attributing the attributes of God to it. You know, when I swear on my mother's grave, right, it's really stupid, right? Because my mother's grave can't hear me make that vow. I can't hold accountable for making that vow. It can't judge me if I don't complete that vow. But we're acting like it can. But we're acting like it's got the power of God to be able to do those things. That's why it's idolatry. This is exactly what Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. The scribes and the Pharisees were swearing on the temple or on Jerusalem. These things are great. These things are holy. These things belong to God. Yet they're created things. They're not the created. And, and they're vowing to the created things and elevating the creation to a place that belongs only to the created. And when we do that, it's just going to bring judgment upon us. Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Why should I pardon you? Your sons have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the harlot's house. They were well-fed, lusty horses, each one neighing after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? And on a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? So we need to be careful that when we're talking, the way that we're using our words, especially if we're making oaths or promises or vows, that we aren't committing idolatry. We're not swearing on something other than God. Point number three, we should vow sparingly and carefully. So fill in sparingly and carefully. Jesus and James said that we really shouldn't swear at all. This should be the goal. Right? Like I said, to live a life in such an upright and blameless manner that people just trust us. They're not asking us to make a vow or an oath. They just believe when we say we'll do something that we'll do it. They're not saying, hey, well, well what are you going to swear on? Or, or what's going to enforce your word? They just believe your word. But it's not going to be possible to, to go through life and never make an oath or a vow. And I'm sure some of us at some point want to get married. Some of us probably want to buy a house or buy a new car, things like that. In order to do that, you're going to have to make an oath or make a vow. But we need to be careful when we vow because God will require it from us. All those are voluntary, but when they're made, they become binding. But we need to be careful that we don't vow to do something that we won't be able to fulfill. This is why in the Roman church, when they make their priest take a vow of celibacy for life, that this isn't a lawful vow. Number one, Matthew 18, Jesus says that that's not for everybody, but that's for who it's been given for. So to make all priests take that, you know, is unlawful. But even think about it now. Right now, I've got the gift of singleness. I am happy being single. I love what I'm doing. I'm serving the Lord. This is great. It would be tempting to say, I'm just going to do this forever. I'm going to take a vow of celibacy. I'm just going to serve the Lord. But what if God wants to bring a spouse into my life in the future? 
and now I've made this vow of celibacy, and later on now my vow will be going against the will of the Lord, and there will be this conflict. Right? So, so we shouldn't make a vow about something in the future that we can't guarantee that we won't be able to fulfill. But what if you make a vow of poverty? And later on in life, God wants to trust you with some riches, right? He, he wants to bless you. And, and, and now you're afraid to take these, this wealth. You're, you know, afraid to honor the Lord with it because of this vow that you've made in the past. There's this, this conflict because you entered this vow that you never should have entered to begin with. You know, this is why we should be extremely careful about getting in debt. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, yeah, we assume we'll be able to keep doing our job and keep getting the paycheck that we're getting, but what if that doesn't happen? What if you take out a giant loan and all of a sudden you get hurt and you can't work, and how are you going to pay that loan back? I understand there's some loans that we have to do that, right? Sometimes we are forced by emergency to borrow money, but more often than not, it's because of covetousness, because of greed, because of us not being happy with the provision that God's given us, so we're getting ahead of them and saying, I want this now, and I'll pay for it later. But how do we know that that provision to pay for it later is going to come to us? You know, there's this Egyptian proverb. One who is quick to take an oath is quick to meet his death. Right? So we need to be careful. right? We need to be careful when we take oaths, that we take vows, that we're doing them, uh, lawfully, that we're make sure that we're able to perform them, make sure that we're bowing things that are legal. Point number four, our oaths should be made clearly. Turn the word clearly. You know, when we get into an oath, we need to make sure that the terms are clear. And we need to make sure that they're not just clear to us, but they're clear to the other side as well, right? Anytime that we enter an oath or vow, the terms of that oath or vow should be understood by both parties. In our culture, it's common to use phrases that have ambiguity or to just make the terms of the agreement so long that it's impossible for people to read it all to make an informed consent or understanding. Think Congress, right? They tell you, hey, here's this 5,000-page document. We want you to sign it and vote on it you know, in five hours, right? And there's, there's no way that you could read it and understand it and ask questions about it and all that in that amount of time. But, they, but that's what our, our culture is always trying to push on you, right? They're, when you're buying that car, they're trying to hide the fine print, things like that. That shouldn't ever be us as Christians. We should make sure that people understand the vows that we're getting into. You know, in Psalm 24, one of the reasons that a man is virtuous is because he doesn't swear deceitfully. When he does swear, when he makes oaths, when he makes vows, he's upright, he's honest, he's blameless. Psalm 24, verse 3, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who's going to come into God's presence? And who may stand in his holy place? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, and who has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. 
the, the person who's praiseworthy is the person who doesn't swear deceitfully. So when we make oaths, we want to make sure that they are clear. Point number five, a lawful oath cannot be sinful. Throwing the word sinful. There may be a time where we make an oath, and in order to fulfill this oath, we need to end up committing some kind of sin. We need to break one of God's commandments. We talked about the classic example of this as Jephthah in chapter 11 of Judges. Right? He's going out to battle, and he makes an oath. Say, God, if you give us victory, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house when I return. God gives them victory. God delivers the children of Israel. Great day. Back to his house. And what's the first thing that comes out of his house? His daughter. He thought it would be a sheep or something, and he would make this sacrifice to God, and it would be great. But his daughter came out. Now, we don't know in the story whether he ended up sacrificing his daughter or not, if she just lived as a perpetual virgin. Um, I tend to think that he did sacrifice her. But the, the text is a little bit ambiguous. But the idea is, is this, is once we've made that vow and we realize that it's going to force us to do something that's against the will of the Lord or violate the Lord's commandments, now we have an obligation to repent of that vow. That wasn't a lawful vow. That wasn't a God-honoring vow. And so that first vow that we made is something that we need to repent of. Not allowed to do further unrighteousness because we made an unrighteous vow. No, we have no right to vow something that is sinful. Imagine I meet a girl and we fall in love, we get engaged, and I promise I'm going to marry her. I'm going to take care of her. She's going to be my bride. And then I find out that, you know, she had a previous relationship and they're separated, but they're not really married. There's this guy who lives in Slovakia or something, and technically they're still married. Now, I could marry her here in California, and probably no big deal when we go about our lives, but I would be breaking the Lord's command of not to multiply wives. The right thing to do would be to repent of that vow and say, I'm not going to enter into this sinful relationship. Let's say I promise a friend that on his birthday that we'll do whatever he wants. We'll, we'll enjoy it, right? We're going to have a good time. And his birthday comes, and he wants to get wasted and go to the gentleman's club. Now, do I have the right to say, well, I promised him. You know, i got to keep my word, God. My word's my bond. So I guess i got to get drunk and go to the strip club. No, that wouldn't be the right thing to do. The right thing to do would be to repent of that vow that you made to your friend and say, hey, no, I'm not going to do this as sinful. You need to find something else that you want to do or I'm going to break this vow because it is not a lawful vow. But I, I would caution us with this. There's going to be times where we make vows and there's going to be great consequences to fulfilling that vow. Right? And we only have a right to break it if it's actually sinful consequence, if it's going to make us sin, if it's going to make us violate the will of the Lord. If it's just going to bring consequences that are uncomfortable into our life, no right to violate that. 
right? We need to accept the consequences that may come. Although God promises us that in such cases, he will bless us. In Psalm 15, verses 4 and 5, it says, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised. For who honors those who fear the Lord? He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. He honors those who fear the Lord. One of the ways that we show that we fear the Lord is by honoring the oaths, honoring the vows that we make, even if it brings hurt to us. We're not going to change it because there's a cost, is the idea. Point number six, we need to fulfill our vows or expect judgment. All throughout the Bible, we see evidence of people not fulfilling vows and God bringing judgment. I, I said the children of Israel, they entered a vow with God there on Sinai. They became his people. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God sending prophet after prophet after prophet warning them, saying, hey, you're being unfaithful to my vow. You're being unfaithful to the vow you made to me. If you keep this up, the judgment's going to come. For instance, Zechariah 5, verses 3 and 4, it says, Then he said to me, This is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on one side. And everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts. And it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its tender and its stench. God saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to destroy your house. I'm just going to consume your house. It's not going to be there anymore. And one of the reasons I'm going to do it is because you swore deceitfully. You swore falsely by my name. You know, in the book of Judges, or I'm sorry, the book of Joshua, Joshua, the, the leader of Israel, he makes a kind of a rash vow with the Gibeonites. Remember that? This group, the Gibeonites, they come and they kind of trick Joshua. They kind of trick the nation of Israel. And they take old bread and old dirty clothes and, you know, show up and they say, hey, we came from a far way. And they're like, how do we know that we came from a far, far way? And they say, well, this bread was fresh when we left, you know, and now look at it. It's old, it's moldy. Our clothes were clean when we left. Look at it. We're, we're dirty, you know. We've been on this long journey. And so Joshua makes a covenant with the Gibeonites, and, and says, yeah, we'll, you can be with us, we'll take care of you. And then it turns out, they figure out just a few days later, that it, it they weren't really from far away, that they were from really close, that they were one of the people groups that God had told the children of Israel that they needed to annihilate and destroy when they come into the promised land. And so now Joshua and the elders, the leaders of Israel, get together, and they're trying to decide, hey, what are we going to do about this? And it says this in Joshua 9, 19. The Lord said to the whole congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them. 
even let him live, so that the wrath will not be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. Then the leader said to them, Let them live. So there became hewers of wood and jars of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. Interesting. They didn't want to break the covenant or the oath with the Gibeonites because they didn't want God's judgment to fall on them. Not on the Gibeonites for lying to them, for being deceitful with the nation of Israel. But they made a covenant, and they said, Hey, I ain't going to break this covenant because I made it in the name of the Lord. And if I break it, I know God's judgment is going to come. Interestingly, years down the road, Saul, King Saul, ends up breaking this covenant and attacking and destroying the Gibeonites. And you know what God did? The next generation. When David's king, he sent a massive famine on the land for judgment because King Saul didn't honor the vow that Joshua made with the Gibeonites hundreds of years before. It's interesting. It's the truth is that if we don't fulfill our vows, we can expect judgment. And it may not come right away, but as we see with the story of Saul, it, 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 it will come. Sooner or later, it will come. If it doesn't come now or in this lifetime, it'll come at the end of the ages. Revelation 21, when the new heavens and the new earth are here, and the new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven, it says this, but the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fires and brimstone, which is the second death. That's a liar, someone who doesn't speak truth, someone who doesn't honor their vows. They will meet their judgment in the lake of fire. But the character of the redeemed is that we speak the truth. Right? Paul says in Ephesians 5, speak the truth in, in love. Right? That, that should be our character. Last point, number seven, be cautious. Most vows aren't made lawfully. Become cautious and lawfully. You know, most of the vows that we make today are done pretty flippantly. And because of this, they bring great harm to us and to our witness. Most of the time when we make a vow, or uh, we, we aren't thinking about all that a vow is. We're not thinking about the fact that we're swearing to God. We're not thinking about the fact that God's going to hold us accountable to that vow. And most people just kind of flippantly promise things, or flippantly you know, sign things, or you know, make a vow about things. And, and I want us to be careful about this because the enemy is going to use that as well. He, he, he really is. And, and we got a great example of that just in the Gospels, right? Uh, there was a guy, King Herod, right? And he had promised this girl that he would give her whatever she wanted, up to half of her kingdom, because he, she pleased him in the way that she danced at his birthday party. And what does she ask for? She asked for the head of John the Baptist in the platter. And now, Herod didn't want to kill John. He was afraid of John. He liked John. But because of his vow, it says that he had John killed. He had to do something he didn't want to do because he made a rash vow. How about Peter? Right? 
Peter had been told that he's going to deny the Lord three times. And he's like, yeah, I'm not. They might. I won't. You know, I'm ready to die for you. <laughs> and Jesus said, hey, I'll be here to cough twice. You're going to deny me three times. <laughs> and they go out, and Peter's following him at a, a distance. And what well, says this, Matthew 26. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You two were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out of the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those that were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he had been denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you two are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said before. Cost, uh, rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. You know, the enemy is going to get us to make vows and promises in ways that don't honor the Lord, in ways that aren't lawful. The check against this is to remind ourselves that vows are a big deal. Right? We, we shouldn't get ourselves into them without great consideration. There's going to be times that we need to take a vow. Let's make sure that we don't take them unnecessarily. In James 5.12, he says, But above all, brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall the judgment. Now just let what you say be true. And if they force you to take a vow, that's okay. But make sure you're making a lawful vow because you don't want to fall under judgment. One last verse, Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 5. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, said this, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a manner in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort. And the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So it's better to not vow than to vow and not pay. Right? The, the person who doesn't make a vow is better than the one who makes a vow and doesn't keep it. But it's also true that no man is well off who does not make vows and keep them. If we want to do something great, sooner or later, we're going to have to make a vow. Right? Doing great things requires great trust, and there's going to be vows. And we need to make them. We need to make them lawfully. We need to be faithful to them. Amen. So, God, uh, I do thank you. I thank you for tonight. I thank you for my brothers and my sister who are here, Lord. I just pray that you would bless them, that you would be their God, that you would be with them. Lord, that you would provide for them, that you would protect them, that you would encourage them, that you would be their, their strength, God.
I pray that you'd fill them with your joy, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. I pray for those that aren't here. I pray that you just do the same, that you do with them. I pray that you'd bring them back to us, Lord. Uh, I, I thank you for devoted. I believe that you want to you want to do something. You want to do something new. You want to do something great with this gift, Lord. And so give us vision and, uh, and help us to execute that, Lord. And help us to be faithful with you through it, God. So again, we do thank you. And I thank you that you've made a vow to us that we would be your people, that we will be with you in heaven, and that we could trust that you are faithful, that you are true, that you, it's impossible for God to lie, and that you will fulfill what you have promised, Lord. That's unconditional, and we are so thankful for that. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.